thank Kim for doing that, please. Thank you, Kim. So as you know, we've been going through the book of Corinthians, and really it's a it's just a survey of the church just in general. And I remember from the very first sermon, we said that the church is not a place. The church is not a program. The church is not solely the pastor. Who is the church? The people. We are church. Now, when you think about the church on earth, she has separated herself from every other organization and institution on planet earth. If you think about it for just a moment, while other organizations and other um, institutions have come and gone and basically been relegated to the history books, the church for over 2,000 years has continued to grow. Even during persecution, pandemics, uh, pestilences, corruption within the church. There has not been one single human leader over the universal church. There is not one governing board over the universal church on earth, and yet it continues to grow and expand. She is a, a lighthouse to a dark night. She is a lifeguard to the drowning soul. She is life to a decaying world. The church is powerful. The church is strong. And the church for over two millennia has made her impact known on earth. And when you think about all the continents of the earth and all the countries of the earth and all the tongues and, and uh, kin and all different races and gender and experiences and levels of wealth, the church continues to proliferate and expand within every community on planet earth. So my question is, what is the source of her power? What separates her from every other institution? Taking God and the supernatural out of it, what is the church doing right where every organization tends to fall off the face of the earth? And as I was thinking about that, three things came to mind. One is unification. The second is edification. And the third is order. And if you think about the church at Corinth, which one of those were they doing right? None, right? They are an example of what not to be. When you think about unification, they were dysfunctional. They were ununified. They had factions and fragments and dissension and, and backfighting and in-house fighting the whole way through. What were some of the areas that we've studied in which they were really divided on? Anybody remember? Going all the way to chapter one, what leaders, right? Some say, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, and I'm of Christ. They were divided on leadership. They were also divided on doctrine. When it came to marriage and singleness, everybody seemed to have their own opinion. When it came to spiritual gifts, everybody had their own opinion. Next, or in two weeks, we're going to start chapter 15. And one of the doctrines there is uh, the resurrection from the dead. And Paul is saying, how do you, some of you say there is no resurrection? So even when it came to theological things, they were divided completely. Not only were they divided in doctrine and leadership, they were ununified and they were not building each other up. And that's the second real key of the church's edification. The church was tearing people down. What were some of the ways which this Corinthian church stumbled their brothers and sisters? Anybody remember? 
Yeah, they were suing each other. It got so bad that the drama spilled out from the walls of the church into the actual community. And Paul is saying, what kind of witness is that? You are going before an unbelieving, God-rejecting court system when you should be able to have at least one wise person to be able to govern and to be able to rule over the matters that you guys are fighting over. They were suing each other. What else were they doing? Tearing each other down. They were sacrificing meat to idols, stumbling some brothers and sisters whose um, conscience was more sensitive than others. Some people were saying, it's just me. I can go back to the old system, the old lifestyle, not a big deal. Others were saying, that's horrible. And because of that, they were being split apart. You had more conservative and more liberal believers in the church, and they were really at odds with one another. Other things, they were fleshly, chapter 3. When it came to uh, adultery in chapter 5, some were boasting about that sin in the church. In chapter 6, some were sleeping around with prostitutes, stumbling brothers and sisters and also stumbling the church. So they had the communion table. People were coming in drunk. People were gluttonous. They were taking communion at all the random times, doing whatever they wanted to do. So you saw within the church, they were really, really fragmented. Now in chapter 14, we're going to see this morning that in the order of service, there was no order. There was no dignity. There was no real structure to how they uh, conducted their gathering together of one another. And so when you have everybody doing their own thing, bringing their own agenda into the church, you have chaos. And so the church was chaotic. They were not edifying. They were not united. And there was no order in the body. And so Paul spends an entire 16 chapters rebuking them. And so they are an example of what Journey Community Church is not to be. Now, when it comes to unification, what are we to be unified on? Specifically, there's, there's about at least five things Paul tells us throughout the book of Corinthians that we've looked at. And one begins with the mind. If you look at chapter 1, and verse 10, Paul says that. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, as Christians, we are to think the same way. It doesn't mean we can't have differing opinions. It doesn't mean that we can't interpret scripture slightly different. But when it comes to the fundamentals of our faith, we are to be unified. Like St. Augustine said, when it comes to essentials, unity. When it comes to non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity or love. The, the foundational items, we are to be of one mind, unified. Here's another one. If you turn to chapter 11, we are to be unified in right. And what I mean by that is R-I-T. There are two spiritual rights that the church is called to perform or religious activities that the church is to continue. What are those two things? Exactly. Water baptism is the first spiritual right. We are called to continue that religious practice. The second one we're going to observe this morning, communion. Now, the Corinthians were just terrible when it came to communion. They were using the Lord's, uh, the Lord's cup as a place to get drunk. They were gluttonous and using the bread to feast. And the rich had all that they wanted and the poor had none at all. And there was just this real 
disservice to the church and to the Lord. So Paul addresses it. And he says, when it comes to these religious rites, be unified. So in chapter 11 and in verse 33, so then my brethren, when you come together to eat, so again, the focus is on the corporate gathering of the church, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not to come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I will arrange when I come to you. So unified of might, mind, unified of right. Here's the third one, unified in heart. If you look at the very last sentence of chapter 12, Paul writes and says, I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, do you remember what that excellent way is? He writes a chapter on it, and it's in chapter 13. Love, there we go. The more excellent way is love. So he says, I will show you more excellent way. He describes love, and then the very first command of chapter 14, if anybody's there, 14a, what does it say? Pursue love. The more excellent way is love because love never fails and love is the greatest virtue. Therefore, we are to pursue love. We are to be unified of heart. Now, here's the fourth thing. We are to be unified of purpose. Why does God give spiritual gifts to the body of Christ? To edify the body and to do what? It's in chapter 12, verse 7. What is it, Maria? I can't hear you. To serve for the purpose of what? Chapter chapter 12, verse 7. The common good. So when we gather together and we're inspired by worship and we're inspired by the word of God and we're inspired by other people's generosity and other people's giftedness and other people blessing one another, as we take that back to our own lives, we exit the door and we enter into our own mission field, the workplace, the the college campus, the home, whatever it is, we then exercise our spiritual gifts for the purpose of good. We want to bless those people at the gym. We want to bless those people in the neighborhood. We want to show the goodness of God through our good works. That's why Jesus says, let your light so shine before the world that they do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Why? Through the observance of what? Your good works. They see your good works and God gets the glory. So we are to be purposeful in doing common good and chapter 14 and verse uh, 12 to bring about, or I'm sorry, verse 17, to bring out edification for the church, which leads us to point number two. We are to be unified and edified. Does anybody remember what the word means, edification? To build up, literally in the Greek, it means to build the home. If you look at chapter 13, or chapter 3 and verse 9, I can read it to you. Paul writes and says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The word building in Greek is the same word edification. It's used 18 times in the New Testament, nine times in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Over and over, Paul is concerned about one thing, that the church be built up. Now, he's not talking about the property. He's not talking about programs. He's not talking about the pastor. Who is he talking about? The people, you, 
The purpose of the church and our gathering is to build one another up. It's to elevate and not tear down. It's to establish and not wreck. We are to help one another, bless one another, heal one another. Now we get to the third step, and this is where chapter 14, the end of it really comes into play. We need order in the church. Now think of a construction project. Think of the laborers, you need the right tools, you need the right materials, you need the correct blueprints, and you need one other specific thing. You need to build in a very specific order. There has to be order on the construction site. For example, you can have all the right laborers, the right tools, you can have the right blueprints, but what if me as a general contractor or the foreman says, let's build the roof before we build the framework of the house? So if I have everybody starting off with the roof, is that house going to get built? No. If I tell the the guys to say, hey, let's start framing the house, but there's no foundation, is that house going to stand? No. It has to be done with a very particular order. There's a sequence of events in order for the right laborers, the right material, the right tools to be used to build the house. In the church, the laborers are you and I. The raw materials are our resources. The skill set is our giftedness. Now, the order of service is how we put all of those things together so that the church can actually grow and be a blessing to each other and ultimately to the common good. Now, Paul begins to talk about what that order is, how Sunday service, how the gathering of the saints ought to happen so that we can actually grow together. So I have a a basic outline, which is the same one we've been looking at, and then we have a specific outline for this morning. So the basic outline is we looked at, number one, the rank of tongues. Does tongues rank high or low on the scale of spiritual gifts? Why? Why is it low? Why does Paul make this point and spend 19 verses that the gift of tongues is not the best gift? It doesn't build and construct and edify the whole church. It's like a person trying to play an instrument that has no musical ability. It's like somebody blowing a war trumpet that they don't play the right tune. It's like a person speaking a language that nobody understands. It doesn't benefit anyone. Then he tells us about the reason for tongues. And that's last week's message. Does anybody remember what it is? It's a sign to unbelievers for what? No. Judgment. It's actually not even for the corporate edification of the church without interpretation. When there's no interpreter, it's actually a sign to the unbelievers pointing to God's judgment. And we looked at that last week. Now this week, we're going to look at the routine of tongues and service. Now specifically, we have our outline for today. And so Paul in chapter and verse 26 gives us a general principle for how there's to be order in the service. And then in verse 27 and 28, he gives us a very specific, can you flip the slide, Denisa? He gives us a very specific uh, order of service for tongues and then a very specific order of service when it comes to prophecy. So we'll read it and then we'll jump right in. Verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? 
When you assemble, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three, uh, be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silence. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So in verse 26, we got our general rule of thumb. And Paul poses a question. What is the outcome then, brethren? So what Paul is really asking is, well, then what do we do? What is the service to look like? How do we keep order within the body? And then he exposes their sin or where they're going wrong. And then the last part of the verse, he tells us what the answer is to his question. So what are we supposed to do? Then he shows the folly of the Corinthian church. And look at what they were doing. When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, and has an interpretation. So the Corinthian church, when they were gathering together, each one of them brought their own stuff to present before the body. So the very first one is a psalm. Now, when you hear psalm, what's the first thing you think of? Worship and music. For me, I think of the book of Psalms, but you guys are actually right. It's mostly referring to hymn, what we consider hymnals. People would take an instrument, they would take uh, some kind of spiritual song or worship towards God, and then they would play music. We call it today worship or leading musical worship. The Corinthian church, they were coming together and each one was bringing their own little instrument or bringing their own little hymn to present before the body. Then the next thing, what did they bring to the church? They brought their own what? Teaching. Teaching. It's right there in verse 26. They went from songs and then they went to teaching. They were each bringing their own little sermon to the church. They were like, okay, I've been studying. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to preach. And then they each brought their own prophecy or direct revelation from God. They each brought their own tongue and they each brought their own interpretation to the body. So suppose a church this size would do that. How chaotic would it be? Now imagine if you had a church of 300 or 500 or 600, everybody wants to do worship, everybody wants to preach the sermon, everyone wants to stand up before God and speak, everybody wants to speak in a foreign tongue, and everybody wants to give their own interpretation. You would have chaos within the body. Now what's one commonality with with each one of those things that the Corinthians were doing? Singing, preaching, Speaking on behalf of God, speaking in tongues and interpreting. What is the common denominator of all of those things? They are all speaking gifts. And each one of those gifts are front and center. The limelight. Each one of them wanted to really be the center of attention. Now, one thing about Corinth is they were the Broadway of the ancient world. And we discussed that before. 
in in the the Roman Empire, you had all kinds of different uh, nationalities and people and all different kinds of different languages. And with each of those regions, you may have one theater. In Corinth, they had three different theaters. They were really the 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 lights, camera, action area of the Roman Empire. Everybody wanted to be a superstar. It would be like the Corinthian idols if they had that back in the day or dancing with the stars. Everyone wanted to be rich and famous and powerful. That was the Corinthian church. And I think that kind of culture bled into the body. And so you had people wanting to have the lights on them. And so each one brought speaking gifts before the body. Here's another thing to consider. Does everyone have the gift of teaching? Does everybody have the gift of prophecy? Does everybody have the gift of tongues? Does everybody have the gift of interpretation? Can everybody sing and play an instrument? Not well, at least, right? So how is it that each one was able to bring each of those components to the body? What is that telling you and I? That when they were serving, they were serving outside of their giftedness. Right? If you can't preach and teach, you don't have that skill set, you have no business preaching and teaching, you know, before the corporate church, before the gathering of the saints. Just like me, I would have no business picking up a guitar and wanting to sing. If I told Richard on a Sunday morning, hey, just take a break, I'm going to bring my own hymns to the stage, and I pick his guitar, and I start to strum it, and I start to sing, it's going to do two things. One, Who's your attention going to be on? Me. How terrible and tone deaf Chris is. And when your attention is on me, who's your attention not on? How wonderful Christ is. And so it does a disservice to the body and it does a disservice to God. Each one has a very specific giftedness, has a very specific calling. Now, here's the rule of thumb, and here's the answer to how we are to operate within the church. Look at the end of verse 26. Let all things be done for edification. Here's how we fix the charismatic chaos within the body. Everything that we do, let it be for the building up of the church. So if me playing the guitar and singing is taking away or detracting from the church, what am I not to do? Sing and play the guitar. We are to build up and not tear down. Now, the word done in Greek, it's our first imperative or command, Paul gives us, is an interesting word. It means to manufacture Now, when you think of manufacturing something, you have a laborer and then you have raw materials and that laborer and the raw materials work together and they actually manufacture or build or create something. What is the church to do in an orderly manner when we gather? We are to manufacture or create good works for the purpose of what? Edification or building up. That's the key to service, and that's the general rule of thumb. If I'm gifted in an area, stay in my lane. If I'm not gifted in an area, don't get into that lane and try to be someone you are not. Because when I am trying to be someone I'm not, I burn out and I do a disservice to God. For example, think of the human body. The foot is designed to bear weight. If God called me to be a hand, and I want it to be a foot, and I try to do a handstand, I might be able to bear my weight for a little bit. 
but ultimately it will all come crashing down and I'll burn out because I'm operating in a manner that I've never been called to operate in. And it's the same with the construction site. If God has called me to be an electrician and I'm trying to be a roofer or a plumber, I'm just going to burn out. I'm going to hate it. It's going to be hard on my body, so on and so forth. God has called each one of us for a very specific reason. If you look at chapter 12 and verse 14, we all matter because we are all part of the body and it doesn't matter where we fit in as long as we stay in the lane. Chapter 12 and verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members of each one of them in the body just as he has desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So Paul's solution to order within the church is stay in your giftedness and stay in your lane. If you stick to the ministry God has called you to, you're not going to burn out. You're not going to do a disservice to God and you're not going to do a disservice to other people. Unlike the Corinthians, we are to do what God has called us to do. Now we get into the, the specifics. Now specifically the rules when it comes to tongues and when it comes to prophecy, because this church was vandalizing both of those gifts. And so verse 27, we have four guidelines to the rule of tongues. Verse 27 and 28. If anyone speaks in tongues, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So here's rule number one when it comes to the corporate administering of the gift of tongues. How many should there be? A max of three. So you can have up to three people. Two or three seems to be the preferable number. Any reason why Paul limits the gifts to two or three. Confusion, that's absolutely one. What else? Time, that's a very practical one. So imagine we have 500 people and 300 wanted to get up and speak in tongues. You better bring your meals for the whole week, your your work clothes for the week, a bar of soap and your sleeping bag because we're going to be here all week long. We might even start charging you rent, right? It's going to take too much time. It's not practical. What else? It's going to be chaotic. It's going to be take way too much time. What's another reason do you think that Paul says two or three? Confusion. What else? So when you think of the law, there's a, a few times when, when the law brings up two or three and Jesus brings up two or three. <clears throat> Anybody remember those instances? So turn to Deuteronomy, 
Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So someone says, this person broke into my house and they're going to the authorities and they're saying, this person, you know, broke my window, stole my radio. For it to be validated as truth, there must be two or three witnesses to say, we saw that same exact event. When you think of the gospels, why does, why do we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And when you think about it, why were only Matthew and John eyewitnesses and then Mark who was got his testimony directly from the eyewitness of Peter. It was to validate Christ as truth in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Now turn to Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> Jesus talks about the church. And if you got beef in the church with other Christians, he gives us a very practical template on how to deal with the beef. In Matthew 18 verse 15, if your brother sins, Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So if I sinned against you, what's the first step to reconciliation? You go directly to that person and say, hey, da 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 And if they repent, you've won your brother back. Now, if they don't repent, verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Why does Jesus say take two or three? For the sake of what? Truth. So that the truth can prevail. Now, if that doesn't work, go to the elders of the church. You take it before the church. Now, what I've noticed as being a pastor is people skip step one and two and pastor then becomes babysitter. And they say, so-and-so hurt my feelings or so-and-so looked at me a weird way or so-and-so said something that, that made me upset. And, you know, they forget going to that person. They forget taking two or three goes directly to the pastor. This is, this is the order by which the church can have order and reconciliation. So in the law and before Jesus in the church, why were the witnesses two or three gathered? For the purpose of what? Truth. So that the truth can prevail. When we come to tongues and that is corporately speaking on behalf of God to the body, what are we concerned about? Truth. When you think about it, we're born of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14 calls him the spirit of truth. We are born, be, are born again because we placed our faith in Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the what? Truth, truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Then P, uh, Paul would write to Timothy and he says, um, be workmen not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So as Christians, truth matters. We're born of the spirit of truth from the savior of truth, and we learn of God through the word of truth. So when someone is speaking before the church on behalf of God, 
truth matters. So Paul says two or three. It's also to keep the chaos down, and it's also, like John said, to keep the time down. If not, the church service will go on forever. And some of us have been in church services where they go six hours long, and you're just like, oh my God, Lord, please come. You know, it's just too much. And so uh, the, the number one rule, two or three at most. Now here's rule number two, and each in turn. So here we have the sequence of events. If you have two or three uh, witnesses or people who are going to speak on behalf of God, they are to take their turn. Now, this is something we learned in kindergarten, but apparently the church needs to hear it again. When one person's speaking, everybody else is listening, right? We've learned that when we were five years old. However, when you look at some hyper-charismatic churches, and all you have to do is Google tongues and on YouTube, and just watch some of the church services. You will see people rolling on the ground. You'll see people running up and down the aisles. You'll see people dancing frantically, howling like dogs, beating their chest. The pastor speaking in tongues and everybody is speaking at the same time. And it looks like an insane asylum that nobody is taking their pills. Now, The Bible says God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And look at verse 40. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So when the gift of tongues is being presented, a person is to speak one at a time. And the purpose is for edification. If everyone's speaking at the same time, it looks like a madhouse. And look at verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? And that's exactly what people say when they see those kind of spectacles and they label that as a Christian church. People, unbelievers say, I I don't want to be a part of that. And so when we're speaking, It's to be two or three at most and each taking their turn. Here's rule number three. And one must interpret. Why is it important for interpretation? Edification. If you look at verse five, now I wish that you all spoke in tongues. So Paul's not knocking the gift. He's knocking how they're abusing the gift. But even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues. Unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So the purpose of interpretation is so that the church can grow. Now here's the last rule when speaking in tongues corporately. Verse 28. But if there is no interpreter... He must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and God. So here is silence or self-control. The person has the ability to restrain themselves. Again, you look at some of these churches and they say, well, the Holy Spirit has come upon me. And then they just start doing their own thing. When you look at the fruits of the Spirit, the very last one is self-control. When the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, they are a controlled human being. They're able to take their urges to sin. They're able to take their desires to uh, do things that don't glorify God. They're able to do things that they don't want to do, like maybe wake up early on a Sunday morning and serve, even though their flesh is saying just sleep in and just enjoy this easy Sunday morning. 
They're able to take their impulses and relegate them or subject them to Christ and have self-control and do what God calls them to do. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you have self-control. You aren't just this madman or madwoman beating to your own drum. That's not how the Holy Spirit operates. So we are to have an interpreter. And if there is no interpreter, he is to remain silent and let eat, let him speak to himself and to God. So if you look at verse 16 through 19, Otherwise, if you bless in spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at your giving thanks? So if you're speaking in tongues and no one understands you, how is anybody who doesn't interpret able to say amen? They can't, since he does not know what you are saying. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So that's the purpose of having an interpreter. So quickly, number, sequence, interpretation, and if there's none of those things, silence. Now we look to the second specific gifted gifts or rules of gifts, which is prophecy. Verse 29 through 32. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silence for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. So rule number one, how many prophets are allowed to prophesy in the corporate service? Verse, what is it? Uh, no, verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak. Now, going back to prophets and prophecy, when we think about prophecy, you, we always immediately think of end times future telling. Oh, they're going to prophesy about who the next president is going to be or who the Antichrist is or when the world's coming to an end or whatever. That's immediately where our mind goes to when we think of prophecy. When in reality, prophecy is either teaching God's word or giving direct revelation to a body. So specifically to this body in a very specific time and place that's very um, in, uh, applicable to our group of people. So it's not necessarily worldwide prophecy. It's prophecy that's happening today. Like God has shown me that somebody here is dot, 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 dot. Or this person has dot, dot, dot. It's a very specific direct revelation for the body that that person is prophesying to. Now, when we think about the office of prophets, what was their purpose? What was the purpose of the prophets in the New Testament? Think of the construction site. They were the ones who laid the foundation. Do you remember that? In Ephesians 2, if you want to flip there real fast, Ephesians 2, verse 19. 
So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, the word building, by the way, is edification, being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together, our word edification, into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the apostles and prophets were the foundation. Why was that? Why was that? Well, right now, what am I preaching from? From the Bible, the word of truth, the word of God, specifically the New Testament scripture. The Corinthian church, when Paul is writing this letter, is the New Testament complete? He's actually writing the New Testament as he's writing to them. So how are they learning about God? How are they being built up in the word of truth if there's no New Testament? The apostles' doctrine. Do you remember the early church? They went around house to house learning the apostles' doctrine, prayer, uh, breaking of bread, and fellowship. So they were learning the apostles' doctrine, and then when it came to direct revelation, what was the office of the prophets doing? So one, they were learning the, the general truths of the word of God, New Testament church through the apostles doctrine. And then they were getting direct application from the office of the prophets. So the prophets in the New Testament were vital to each congregation being able to grow in grace. Now here's where it gets really interesting is as the New Testament is being written out and as the New Testament comes to an end, you see this office of apostleship and prophets begin to phase out. And let me show you what I'm saying. One, let, turn to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. Now this is Peter acknowledging that Paul's writing is actually of Scripture. So Paul's writing 1 Corinthians. He will then write 2 Corinthians. That proves to us that at the time of 1 Corinthians, the New Testament hadn't been completed yet. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look, since you look for things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. But also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which are, are some things hard to understand. So has anybody ever read Paul's writings and say, man, I don't understand what this guy's talking about? Justification, sanctification, edification, glorification, propitiation, all of these Asians, right? And it's like, what is this guy talking about? Well, Peter acknowledges, hey, Paul's writings can be tough. You're not the only one struggling with it. Even the fisherman Peter was struggling with Paul's writings. Now, here is where it's super important. Things so hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. So what is Peter acknowledging here about Paul's writings? 
that they are actual scripture. So in the new in the New Testament church, specifically in Corinth, they didn't have the New Testament. Paul's writings and the others' writings are beginning to circulate throughout the churches. And they're, they're then taking the letters and passing them off to one another and teaching them as scripture. But until the New Testament was complete, this office of prophet was vital to communicating God's word. Now Paul is at the very end of his ministry and he writes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Do you know what those epistles or letters are known as? They're known as the pastoral epistles. And this is at the very end of his life, his career. He's in the Roman prisons. He writes in 2 Timothy that my life is done. I'm about to be poured out like a drink offering, but I've ran the race. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. He's saying, hey, I'm going to die, but I've done everything in my power to do everything God's called me to do. So he writes these pastoral epistles about how the church is to be run, how the pastors are to preach, what they are to preach, how they are to do it, how the elders are to be chosen, how the elders are supposed to rule over the body. He teaches about the church and the establishing of the church because the apostles and the prophets are what to the church? The foundation. He's laying that foundation and then the pastors teachers, evangelists, they are building on that foundation. He never brings up in the pastoral epistles, the apostles. He never brings up prophets. He never brings up prophecy. Why? Because his letters are some of the very last letters to be written in the New Testament. And when we get the revelation of the word of God, the apostles and the prophets' foundational work is complete. 2,000 years later, we're not still working on the foundation. We are called now to build on that foundation. And so the word of God is complete. So the pastors and the teachers and those preachers are called then to take that role. So I just wanted to make that clear. So when it comes to the body, there are to be two or three to speak for the purpose of time and of truth. Now going back to verse 29, and let others pass judgment. Who do you think the others are referring to when they're passing judgment on what the prophets are speaking? It's referring to the prophets. The, the prophets, the two or three in the congregation are called to speak, and then the others who are not speaking are passing judgment. Another word for that is discernment. They're hearing what a person is saying, and they're saying, mm, that's either true or mm, that sounds kind of fishy or that sounds kind of false. I think it's in chapter 12 and verse 3. Yeah, there it is. Chapter 12 and verse 3. I'll read it to you. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if a prophet gets up and they say Jesus is accursed, the other two discerning that say mm, false prophet. That's not right. That's not truth. And then that prophet is to sit down. So what's the purpose of the discernment or judgment? 
to pass truth, right? It's the person speaking on before the church to be truthful in the word of God. So there's to be a max of two or three. The next rule, the other prophets are to then discern or pass judgment. Then verse 30. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silence. So we have one prophet go up and he speaks and then another prophet follows him. And let's say that second prophet says of the first prophet, they're in sin. Why is that first one to remain silent? Why is that first one to not, not defend himself? What would happen if, if the, the second prophet says, the first prophet's in adultery? And then the first, the first prophet stands up and says, thus says the Lord, you're in adultery. What, what, what's going to take place in, right in front, bam smack in front of the church? Division, fighting, backbiting, you know, throw in uh, accusations at one another. And it's going to happen bam smack in front of the church. Now, what is the church to, to act in? Verse 40 says, in an orderly manner. So if the first prophet has beef with the second prophet, they take it away from the church one-on-one. They don't do it corporately and air out their dirty laundry. And so Paul is saying, if one prophet speaks of another prophet, that first prophet is to remain silent for the purpose of unity and edification within the church. Now we go to rule number four. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. So this is a little challenging. When it says you can all prophesy, we immediately think the whole church. Would you agree with that? But not everybody has the gift of prophecy. So the all here is referring to those two or three prophets again. They can all have their turn to speak on behalf of God so that the church may be exhorted. Now here's verse 32. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. Anybody want to take a gander of what that means? The spirits of the prof- of prophets are subject to prophets. They're checking each other, and the prophets themselves are in control of what they are saying, is what Paul is saying. And we go back to self-control. When we think of the apostolic movement or the Pentecostal church or any of those kind of hyper charismatics, it appears that the people within the church are out of control. What Paul is saying is when a prophet gets up to speak, they're not speaking out the side of their lip. They're not just rambling on whatever they feel like they want to say or doing whatever they want to do. The spirit of the prophet or whatever they're communicating is subject to the prophet themselves. In other words, the Holy Spirit's not going to take control and then make the person look like a fool or completely out of their mind or out of control. There is rule number four, self-control within the exercising of prophecy. There, there's no, you know, doing my own thing, having my own agenda, screaming and panting and, and looking like I'm a nut job. None of that. The Holy Spirit, when he comes upon a person, there's ultimate control. Unlike when you're unsaved. When you're unsaved, we can't even control our own fleshly impulses. We get born again, and the Spirit allows us then to restrain ourselves. So we have our rules. Number one, how many prophets are there to be? 
max two to three, and that's for the purpose of truth and time. Then rule number two, discernment. The prophets are checking, balancing one another so that the truth can go forth. The next is sequence and silence for the purpose of having unity within the body of Christ. And then the last part is self-control, that we aren't just flying off the handles, but we are actually able to be controlled in the working of the Spirit. Now, verse 33 is the purpose of it all. For God is not a God of confusion, but of what? Order or peace as in all the churches of the saints. Now that statement makes sure that it's not just a local thing, that he's not just writing to the Corinthians and saying, this is a rule for you. It's for all the churches of all the saints. So that does that include us? Absolutely. Now we're talking about order as far as gifts. Next week, we're going to look at order as far as gender. And I want to leave you with this so you can do your own reading. You can think through things. It's interesting that in chapter 14, every time Paul uses a speaking gift, he uses the masculine tense. Now, in Greek, there's masculine, there's feminine, and there's neuter. And the neuter is it can be male or female. So when you think of mankind, it's the word anthros. And that can be male or female. There's another Greek word, man, which is male, and that's masculine, only male. When you look at, for example, if you look at verse um, 27, where it says, and each one in turn, and one must interpret. The one who's interpreting or speaking to the church, masculine. When you look at if anyone speaks, masculine. When it talks about assembling, each one having a psalm, a teaching, these are all masculine. Why? Why is Paul being so emphatic when he's talking about male and females? I want to read verse 34, and then we're going to tackle this next week. Verse 34, and it's the context of order within the church. The women are to keep silent in the churches, not church, but churches, for they are not permitted to speak but are subject to themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. So now we go from giftedness order to gender order. So next week, we're going to look at why Paul says what he says, and if it's cultural or universal, and then how we navigate. Also going to look at what does it mean to speak? Can a woman not say good morning in a church? Or is he talking about speaking before in a public setting? So Paul goes from giftedness and the order to keep the church in line to gender and keeping the church in line. So I just want to leave you with that. So you can do your own study. You can read through it on your own. And next week when we get into it, it's not this shock. It's not this, oh my God, what is this sexist pig, this misogynistic guy talking about? You can be prepared, studied up, and you can bring your own ideas and understandings to the table. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, God, for the word of God. We thank you, God, for all that you've done, Lord, in this church and throughout the church age. And we thank you, God, that 
the church really is a beacon of hope and light to a fallen world. And we thank you, God, that we have been baptized into her. We thank you, God, that we are a part of her. And I just pray that each person here at Journey would manufacture good works according to their calling. That each one would know the gifts that God has given them. That each would know their calling and ministry and that each would step out in faith and serve. And so, God, I just pray for each one who's battling that or who may not understand that you would give them just fresh revelation and fresh understanding to their strengths and their weaknesses. I pray, Lord, that as a church, each one of us would stay in our own lane and we would minister according to the measure of faith God has given us. And I pray, Lord God, that we would be a beacon of truth. And I pray, God, that we would be saints and servants who are pure of heart, that we wouldn't be caught in sin, that we wouldn't be stumbling and trespass, that we wouldn't be going back like the Corinthians to the old way of living, but that the old man would be dead, crucified with Christ, and the life I now live I live for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. May we shut the door to the old way of living and may we embrace the new life of the Spirit. And so God, as we're reflecting and we're examining, would we just stay in prayer and would we stay in meditation and may we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper that we can come to the table of God, the table of Christ, in a worthy manner, free of unrepented sin, free of bitterness towards others, in reverence and in thought of what you've done for us. And as we turn to your return, would you minister to each one of us, Lord, during this time? And may we confess our sins and our follies and our pitfalls to you. And may we commit again to a fresh start and a new beginning. that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.